We don't have to wait till we're in a leadership position before we can start building those kind of reciprocal alliances that are really the bedrock of connection in organizations. Welcome to the Seismic Shift Podcast. I am thrilled for all of the listeners tuning in today that we get to hear from Sally Helgeson. Sally has been named by Forbes to be the preeminent female leadership expert in the world. She has written international bestsellers. She wrote How Women Rise, and her most recent book, is rising together. And she wrote this, um, gosh, it was just published, what, six months ago, Sally? Exactly. I mean, and, and it's just been receiving so many accolades. And so our conversation today is going to be about how do we rise together? We're going to talk about seismic shifts. We're going to talk about belonging. So much of our work is aligned. And so just to give a little bit of background for our listeners, too, is I met Sally in the organization called 100 Coaches. And one of the first times we were in a breakout group together, she so kindly offered to help me. I was brand new. I just, I don't even think my book had come out yet. We had no idea how we were so aligned. And she's just been an incredible mentor to me. So first of all, I want to start off with some gratitude. Thank you, Sally. Thank you, Michelle, for being in my life. You are awesome. So this culture of belonging, let's begin with what prompted you and, and made you write a book called Rising Together after your international bestseller of How Women Rise? It really happened. I was asked to deliver a women's leadership program at the Construction Super Conference in Las Vegas. This is a massive event. There were about 6,000 men there and a few, a few hundred women. And uh, I said to the client, you know, what do you expect? What? How do you think this will unroll? And they said, well, you'll probably have about 75 women in the industry who are interested in knowing how they can position themselves for leadership and make a, a stronger use of their voice. So I said, fine, that's, you know, what I do every day. So I showed up in my room. Uh, it was a breakout. And uh, there were about 300 people there. And almost two-thirds of them were men. I could not have been more surprised because whenever I go and do do events, they always say, oh, there'll be a lot of men there. And, of course, there are four. But there, there, there were, you know, about 200 men there. So I was unprepared uh, because I prepared my text for all women. And I said, you know, what are you here for? What 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 would be helpful to you today? And they said things that I was, of course, unsurprised by, like, you know, we need to get better at attracting, retaining, and motivating talented women. Uh, if we can't do that, then we understand we're not going to remain competitive. But then one guy stood up and he said something. I'll never forget it because it was very blunt. He said, look, we hope you're not going to waste your time talking about why we need to get better at this. We get it. We understand. We do not know how. We don't have a clue. So How Women Rise had been so helpful to people by being very pro pragmatic about the how of positioning yourself for success. So I thought what I need to do now is look at the how of in creating more inclusive cultures. And in 
in particular, the how of uh, how people as individuals can get better at building strong and effective relationships with those they perceive as being different than themselves. Oh my gosh, that's beautiful. So one of the reasons why I wrote my first book and I titled it The Seismic Shift is because I was seeing these seismic shifts happening in leadership of what used to be an effective style of leadership was no longer effective. And I feel like your seismic shift was what used to be a, an inclusive environment was really not inclusive. And people were like, whoa, okay, the seismic shift happened below our feet. We've got to figure out the how to do that. So I love that. And one of the things that I've learned in all of my research on connection is that connection really is inclusion. And it never occurred to me that that was the case when I was trying to figure out. And so one of the, the definitions you had mentioned was the culture of belonging. And you said the culture of belonging can seem, what did you say, kind of fuzzy, but there's actually a very specific definition. Could you tell us about what does the culture of belonging mean? Yeah, the culture of belonging is basically a culture in which the largest possible percentage of people, first of all, feel... Um, talk about the organization as a we, not a they. That is, they feel ownership in the organization. They feel they own it. Secondly, they feel that they are valued for their potential, not just their contribution. So in other words, they feel seen by people in the organization. And thirdly, it's a culture in which people, the, again, the largest possible percentage of people feel valued beyond just their positional power. So those are the three things that are essential. But it really comes down to that we, not they. And leaders often, you know, are, well, I'm taking a huge assessment of 800,000 people to find out if we have an inclusive or a culture of belonging. Well, you know what you can tell just by hearing them talk. Do they talk about it as a we? Yes. They talk about it as a they. You can bet you do not have an inclusive culture. Language. I mean, that's the first thing that jumped out at me when you shared that definition in your book of a culture of belonging was it's the language that we use. And again, in all of my research on connection, which was what my seismic shift was that, whoa, it is no longer about command and control in this authoritarian style that creates disconnection. That creates a culture of fear. What we need right now is meaningful connection. And we need leaders to create a culture of connection again, which is a culture of belonging. And so much of it has to do with the language that we use. And so if you think about it, like we've got to work with those leaders individually with first the how they talk to themselves because how the how they the, the language they use to talk with themselves affects the language they use to interact with each other which affects at the organizational level so i couldn't agree with you more that we versus they just to do what is it called i think it's called a not a content analysis or a discourse analysis <laughs> back to research methods in grad school right wouldn't that be fascinating to look at different leaders and the language they use and to have some sort of a, assessment as to the culture of belonging 
You know, I call it benevolent, benevolent brainwashing, where you use language very intentionally to signal something to other people. So leaders can do that. Uh, and I think that the sort of generic language of, you know, we're creating an inclusive culture and stuff, it's like people roll their eyes. Okay, I've heard this before. But if you can choose very carefully, you know, we, we're creating a culture in which people feel valued for their potential. Let us know the extent to which you feel that. So you're, you're kind of by the language, you're suggesting what kind of culture you're trying to complain, uh, create and how people will perceive it. Similarly, if you're trying to uh, position yourself as a good team member. Say you feel that you've been a good team player, but you've gotten feedback that, you know, your boss doesn't think you are. Just start talking about teams, talking about your commitment to your team. Talk, talk, uh, start talking about the value you place on teamwork and collaboration. The language you use goes a long way towards shaping people's perceptions of you, your aspiration, and your culture. Oh my gosh, I love that. Yes, so when I was trying to figure out what connection looks like, feels like, sounds like, I came up with this little mini assessment for the leaders that I coach, and we did it at the end of the year to figure out whether their direct reports feel, and I figured out five dimensions. Do they feel seen? heard, valued, respected, and appreciated. And again, that is so in line with belonging, right? That That's what the seismic shift, I feel like it is, Sally, is it's got to be showing up and, and making your people feel that there's so much more than just the dollars that they bring to your company, that you see them as a full human. And I also loved your chapter on authenticity because it takes a shift from the leader as well to give, you have to give yourself permission as a leader, no matter how you were trained and mentored or raised to show up as perfect. You've got to show up as a full human, warts and all, so that you can say, I'm a full human and I'm not trying to be perfect anymore. I'm giving that up so that I see you as a full human and I'm interested in you as a full human. Could you talk more about that? Sure. That is really, really an important uh, it, leaders need to convey. And this is what we're talking about when we're talking about authenticity. Uh, you know, we're talking about the full spectrum of your life. So you're able to write about that. You're able to talk about that. You're able to connect based on that. But it's also really important i think michelle it's it's language is key to setting expectations and to being able to elicit certain responses and if you will plant ideas in people's minds but it is not sufficient behaviors are the key that's where the how uh, that's where the how lives. And I often see, you know, people will post on LinkedIn or Twitter, listen, you know, okay, fine, listen, I get it. How? What is the most effective way of listening? How do I still the voice in my head that's anticipating what I'm going to say next or is wondering or worrying what this, how what I'm saying is being 
perceived. How do I signal to another person that I am actively engaged by with what they're saying? Oh, we don't talk about these hows, these like little granular behaviors that really position us the way we want to be. And I, I from from my perspective, organizations have not focused enough on the how of belonging, how we do that, on suggesting behaviors, modeling behaviors, being very clear about the habits and behaviors most likely to create cultures of trust, cultures where people feel heard and seen. What are those small things? We can't just exhort people to do it. That's what that that man in Las Vegas was saying to me, I get it, but I don't know how to do it. We also have to look at the real specific things that they can do to create that. You are so right. I was watching one of my favorite shows to watch on Sundays. I recorded every Sunday is CBS This Morning with Jane Pauley. And I just love the features that they, they choose. And this last Sunday, they featured David Brooks, And I'm not used to David Brooks writing books or talking about belonging and connection, but that's what his recent book is on. And he mentioned in the interview, and I I stopped it and I paused it, Sally, and I read and I got my book and I started taking notes. And he said, we are in a crisis because we don't, as humans, we don't feel seen. We don't feel heard. We don't feel accepted. There's something going on. And he said, so how do we show up? We need to listen better. And we need to show interest in the others. And the other thing he said is we need to initiate. And, 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 and I think that's key too, is that if, if, you know, I've got a 19 year old daughter and in college. And, and so me as a mom, I'm always trying to like coach her not to a fault and not to hover too much, but just say like, it's hard for these, these kids these days to, it's just hard. I don't know how else to say it. Friendships are hard with all the social media because they assume they have friends, but they're not really friends. And and it's hard for them to initiate. So talk to us a little bit more about what are those, I love how you called it, granular, at the granular level. What can we do in an organization to show up so that people feel included? Well, first of all, I mean, one thing we, we want to do whatever we can to demonstrate our interest and our goodwill. One of the ways uh, that we can do that is if we're at a senior level, we can always ask uh, more junior people or people who've just come in or, or people who are less senior than us on our team. You know, what do you, what, do you have any skills that you aren't getting a chance to use in this job that you think you would like to develop and then be on the opportunity? Uh, on the lookout uh, to find those opportunities for them. Uh, do you, what, do, where do you see yourself in two years? I, I'd like to know because it would be helpful to me to know how I could be useful to you, maybe in terms of making connections, maybe in terms of suggesting training programs. Uh, I, I think that you've got a lot of talent and I'd like to see you develop that. It would be helpful to the organization, be helpful to me. Again, you're demonstrating that vulnerability. Younger people are often, wow, it could be helpful to you. Uh, they're surprised to hear that. Yes, you want to phrase it that way. And then here's another thing. If you're doing that with someone who's more junior, they may, they're, they're actually quite likely to say, well, I can't think of anything or I'm not quite sure where I see myself in two years or, uh, you know, that kind of thing. I, I'm not sure what's, you just say, that's fine. This is an open offer. 
I will come back to you. I'll make this offer again. I'll try to find out. Um, I'll ask you some questions and try to get a sense of how I can be helpful to you. So don't expect, you know, oh, you know, didn't respond. Okay, move on to someone else. No, there's a shyness or a fear around it or an uncertainty. I mean, most of us have been young. We didn't necessarily know exactly what we wanted to do. And we feel almost embarrassed about that when we're younger. So you want to have that as an open offer. But it's also important to recognize that people who are junior can also take the initiative to say, uh, you know, there's someone from my last job, someone from my last position in the company, someone from the community, from the industry, et cetera, that I know. I think that this person might be useful to you in this being very specific in this initiative where we're trying to position ourselves as being the, you know, number one provider or whatever you know, whatever they're trying to do. I think this might be helpful to you. And if you believe that, or if you get that idea, or if there's a point at which that could be useful, let me know. I'll be glad to make that connection. We can also, as younger people say, you know, what I'm interested in knowing what I can do that would be most useful to you in positioning this team getting them recognized in the way that you hope the team can be recognized. Um, In other words, you're showing that you understand as a junior person that part of your job, an important part of your job, is making your boss look good. And um, junior people often don't recognize the power of being able to uh, to to let their boss subtly know that they recognize that. Uh, so those are things we don't have to wait till we're in a leadership position before we can start building those kind of reciprocal alliances that are really the bedrock of connection in organizations. I loved those examples, Sally, because I was putting myself in a direct reports shoes, imagining, okay, what if you were my leader and I'm on this one-on-one call with you and maybe it's our monthly one-on-one, I might have 20 minutes with you and you are taking the time to say, what other skills do you have that maybe aren't being utilized? Or what else do you want to do, Michelle? Or what can I do to help you? I was sitting there thinking, I feel seen. I feel heard. I feel like I matter. I feel like she values me and and my skill set and wants to know more about me. That felt really good. And when I was trying to, again, really come up with definitions of connection and I was trying to be objective, I was taking out the word feel. I feel seen. And, And I was putting in, I am seen. My work is valued. But I don't think you could take the feeling out of it. It's a feeling. Belonging, inclusion, connection is a feeling. And then on top of that, thank you for giving our listeners tips, too, of what they can say in a meeting. Because you're right. Sometimes they're going to be intimidated. They're going to be nervous. They're not going to know how to answer. But again, just giving them that opportunity to say, hey, it, you know, I'm here. It's open-ended. I want to develop you. Because that's what I keep here. And I teach still in the MBA program at Loyola. And I teach strategic communication. And we talk all about connection and culture and belonging. And one of the things that they say more than any other generation, is they are all about being developed. I mean, they're all about belonging. They're all about inclusion. And they're about being developed. 
And, and they don't, they, you know, the young generation, or at least I'm talking about those in graduate school, they're not going to put up with jerk bosses, Sally, at all. Like, you know, they don't have the loyalty. They're not going to stay on like uh, like we did, like our parents did. My dad, who's still alive, he's 78, and I was just with him. I told you about him. He is so positive and energetic and runs circles around me to this day, although I did just beat him in ping pong, and that was Bravo. Thank you. That was a really big deal. He had, we were talking about General Motors, his career at General Motors. He had so many jerk bosses. And yet he stayed for, you know, 35 years. The young generation, they're not going to do that. So my next question to you is, so the listeners are on this call, said that there are some senior executives saying, yes, I'm listening because of Sally, Sally Helgeson. I'm going to create a culture of belonging and inclusion. But what's the ROI? What am I going to, what am I going to get in return? You don't know what you're going to get. I, I, I am very, skeptical about putting quantitative terms around qualitative actions. You emphasized it's a, you want people to feel seen, heard, etc. You can't ask them to qualify that. So I don't think, you know, the ROI is essentially going to be demon, that you will be able to demonstrate excellence in leadership, in the way that excellence in leadership is defined now, not in 1985, which was very, very different. And you will stand a much more significant chance of being able to not just retain, but engage and motivate people who come from outside the traditional leadership mainstream, whether that has to do with gender or race or ethnicity or sexual identity or age or background or culture, you need to be good at that because that is your talent pool. So that takes the development of certain skills that were not required necessarily in 1985 when pretty much everyone that you'd be working with looked the same. So this is essential. And I, I think, I think that putting quantitative measurements around things that are much more qualitative then takes the burden off the leader to really develop those skills, to really actively listen. After all, how do you quantify whether someone listened or not? You do that because somebody has an intuitive feeling. Let me give you a quick example, uh, which I love. It's from Rising Together. You may well remember it. It's a, it's a, a leader who used an intuitive skill to recognize what was going on with a subordinate in a way that turned out spectacularly well. Uh, woman, uh, Sandy Stoltz, she was, had been, she was in the U.S. Coast Guard. She had commanded three icebreakers and she was working in D.C. doing liaison with the government and her, uh, boss, who was, uh, I believe he was an admiral, called her in and he said, um, I've recommended you, uh, for chief of staff for the secretary of transportation. And she said, like, you know, a lot of women do this, even at that level. She said, you know, I don't think I'm quite ready for that job yet. And I'm just learning this one. I'm, I'm learning, I'm feeling my way around DC. So I'm not sure that I would be the right person, the right fit. 
So he didn't say anything. And the next day he called her and he said to her, let me, let me rephrase my question from yesterday. When would you be available to meet with the Secretary of Transportation? Now, he demonstrated such astuteness there, such an intuitive sense. You know, she's, she's just not sure, but I'm sure. So I'm going to push this and she needs to step up here. Uh, so he did that as a, you know, an intuitive sense. He was listening. Uh, but he was also coming back at the issue. How do you quantify the value of that? Well, it could be the fact that she went on to become the, you know, superintendent of the Coast Guard Academy, the only woman ever to head up a service academy, but it's not really an ROI. So I'm not a big fan of using that kind of language. I think it does get in the way of our developing some of these skills. I love that. Thank you. Beautiful. Can mm -hmm. we get back into authenticity? Okay. So when I had Marshall on last season's, my podcast last season, The Seismic Shift, and one of the chapters in my book is authenticity. And he said, ah, oh, Michelle, I don't believe in being authentic. If we're trying, if we're telling people to be authentic, bring your authentic selves to work, they're going to fail. That is not going to work. You can't do that. And, and after that conversation, I realized, you know what? I think my definition of authenticity is different than his. I'm really saying that a leader today needs to give up perfection. I think that's what I'm saying more is that you just, you, you, you can't expect other people to trust you when you're a robot. And you're perfectly quaffed at all times and everything is scripted and you don't go personal and you wear this mask of perfection and there's this wall up and it creates a disconnection. So could you explain to the listeners what you mean? Because I love what you said that authenticity is, should be ever changing. And you talked about cells and constantly renewing and we can't just look at my authentic self as, as, as static. It's changing. Could you share more about that? Exactly, Michelle. I mean, if we look back at our lives, we can see times where we really believed something, we really aspired to something, and then, and we don't feel that way anymore at all. We don't have the same belief. We changed. So we can't say, well, I have to act on my authentic belief that, you know, whatever, because maybe it's authentic to you just now. You will change. The issue I have with authenticity, and I think probably Marshall Goldsmith, whose work I know pretty well, um, he has in What Got You Here Won't Get You There, a wonderful habit that gets in people's way, which is an excessive need to be me <laughs> in circumstances where that may be inappropriate. And I think that encouraging people from the moment they enter the workforce uh, to always be your authentic self and to always raise whatever question you have in whatever circumstance it is and not hold back, I don't think that serves people uh, terribly well. It gives them, you know, it kind of confirms this excessive need to be me. So what I find more helpful is balancing, and I think it, it really speaks to what you're talking about, about perfectionism, is balancing authenticity who we feel we are with the need to be professional, with the need to show up as a professional. You know, maybe I felt sick before I started doing this podcast. 
I don't need to share that with you. I don't need to share that with the people in the audience. That's not what's going to humanize me. I'm a professional. So I'm here to talk about, you know, the subject of our conversation. Uh, but I want to balance that need to be authentic because I think it gives people often the idea that they need to say everything that runs through their mind. And, you know, in the diversity world, we get a lot of people saying, you know, uh, saying things that are offensive. And then they'll say, well, I just got to be me. You know, I just got to be me. I call them like I see them, et cetera. Meanwhile, they're going around offending people, hurting people's feelings, blowing up their own career, uh, blowing up their own image. And it's not helping absolutely anybody. So this I got to be me thing is 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 much more challenging in an environment where people are very diverse, not just in terms of demographics, but very diverse in terms of their values. So we need to recognize that knowledge. Gosh, you are so right. I think the key word that you use, Sally, is humanize. Mm-hmm. How do you, whether you're giving a speech or what, you know, how do you make sure that that others know that you're human? I will never forget. I don't think you were there. Marshall, at one of our meetings, Marshall Goldsmith was talking about how he was up on stage. You all were promoting the book or, or giving your keynotes on how women rise and you were doing it together. And he comes out and he says, um, you all were walking on stage and he fell <laughs> and, 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 and he fell and he just got up and started laughing. Like, and I think he said also that morning he had forgotten to pack pants and, and you had to, you know, pull over to the nearest tar- Target or something or Walmart and buy him pants. And then he, and then he falls on stage <laughs> and he just laughs like, Oh, well. And oh, he well. said, he said, and I'll never forget Sally later said, Marshall, I could never get away with that. He could <laughs> get away with being a human who falls and forgets to pack pants, but sometimes maybe you feel like you can't get away with that. So what does it mean? Like when, give me some examples, especially for the listeners of how do we show up human without, you're right, without taking away our credibility. Without forgetting our pants. Here's how. And this is what I learned from Marshall. And this is actually an anecdote at the beginning of How Women Rise that I told because I was so impacted by his comfort with like screwing things up. What, what was the key? He did not screw up the essential. He was fully present for his audience. He forgot his pants. He fell on stage. You know, he knocked his head coming out of the bathroom in front of 300 people. But he was present for his audience. And this is what I really learned. The, the best way to show up as authentic is to still the voice in our head that's telling us, how is this being received? Um, what are people thinking of me? What's going, what's really going on here? Should I be doing a better job? Oh, forget them. They're so uptight. Whatever that voice is. If we can be fully present and if we can show up for the job we agreed to do, in his case, that was you know, giving a barn burner of a leadership program, then we don't need to worry about the other stuff. So it's not as if, you know, you can call up and say, well, I forgot my notes and I'm not sure what I'm going to talk about today, but I guess it'll be this. You know, that's being unprofessional. Um, Forgetting his pants was unprofessional. What I've realized since, because I work on being fully present, 
I can forget my pants now too if I want to. Oh my gosh. How, what a beautiful way to end this. <laughs> and so my last question for you, the amazing Sally Helgeson is what, what's one piece of advice you'd give to all of our listeners right now of how they can be better leaders and, and create a more inclusive environment at work? I think the thing is to practice informal enlistment. That is asking other people. You know, one thing I'm working on, this is, this goes to the heart of demonstrating some degree of appropriate vulnerability. One thing I'm working on is I'm really trying to become more concise in how I speak. You seem to be really good at that. Do you have any tips for me? Is there anything you do in preparation? Or, you know, I'm really trying to work very hard on being more concise. Whatever it is, it doesn't matter. You're going to be in this meeting with me. Would you just give me quick feedback afterwards and let me know how I'm doing? It would be really helpful to me if you would be direct with me. So those kinds of things, what are we doing there as we enlist people? We're demonstrating vulnerability. We're demonstrating that we value their opinion. We're advertising our commitment to changing something that may have been a problem. And, you know, we're leveraging in the service of our own development what may be a very underdeveloped relationship. So this is a great technique. It's a great way for demonstrating reasonable and professional vulnerability, uh, getting great ideas and building effective relationships, building effective allies, because allyship is really what the inclusive culture uh, permits and encourages. Oh, that is beautiful. Because at the end of the day, by demonstrating the things that you just you just said, Sally, it communicates that we are all rising together. Does. <laughs> and you. that's what I've learned through Marshall, my work with Marshall, with Alan Mulally, with you, with my work with Morag Barrett, with allyship, is if you just admit to people, like you said, sharing your vulnerability, here's what I'm working on. Will you help me? And then what can I do to help you? Then we all rise together and it's a we. Thank you so much, Sally, for taking your time to be on the Seismic Shift podcast. This was just delightful. Listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you learned as much as I did. Have a beautiful day, everyone. Thank you for joining us on the Seismic Shift. And before you go, can I ask one favor of you? Do you mind sharing today's episode with a leader you know? The power of this conversation is found in your using it and sharing it to create real connection in your life. Lastly, I'd like to thank Loyola University, New Orleans and the Terra Firma audio team for helping bring this content to life.